Good morning, church. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Hang on one sec. All right, how are we now? Why does this always happen to me? Oh, here we go. It's going to be a long one, so let me start over. If you are joining us for the first time, last Sunday we introduced a new series of lessons that will address racial equality, unity, and Christian responsibility. I'm calling the series Colorblind, and I, I want to explain or I want to introduce why I'm using that term, because that term can be insensitive and even offensive in certain contexts. I'm calling the series Colorblind because our theme for this year is 2020 Vision, so with Many, if not all, of my sermon series, as well as some of our other teaching opportunities, we've tried to use language related to sight and vision. Additionally, it's, it's not our intent with this title, with this terminology, to imply that we need to minimize, that we need to ignore, or that we need to discredit our diversity. Instead, it's the intent of this series to emphasize our unity in Christ first and foremost. A unity that supersedes all of our differences while simultaneously utilizing them. And so I hope you understand where we're coming from when we utilize this term. It is not intended to offend. It's intended to serve as a, a uh, connection to our theme and to serve as a reminder of our ultimate goal to be Christians first. So I heard a story about a 16-year-old boy who went to his dad and said, Dad, I'm 16 now. I think it's time for you to get me a car. And his dad said, well, if I'm going to get you a car, there's a few things you're going to have to do. You're going to have to pick up your grades. You're going to have to get a job. And you're going to have to cut all that long hair you have. Well, six months went by, and the, the boy... Uh, returned to his father and said, Dad, Dad, I think it's time to get the car. And his dad said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I picked my grades up from a C average to an A average. I got a part-time job. I'm, I'm demonstrating the responsibility you wanted to see. I think it's time to get the car. And the dad said, but you still have all that long hair. And the boy said, well, Dad, I was 
reading through my Bible the other day, and they had a, this picture of Jesus in there, and Jesus had long hair. And his dad said, yeah, Jesus walked everywhere he went too. <laughs> and here's the point. There are some areas of our lives where we want to imitate Jesus. And there are some areas of our lives that we really don't want to imitate Jesus. But the call of the Bible, the call of the gospel, is for us to imitate Christ in all matters. And failure to do so is tantamount to sin. And sin is the issue that we want to address today because it's the responsibility of the church to call sin, sin. On some issues, the church has been quick to pronounce something as sinful. The church did not hesitate to condemn adultery or to condemn abortion or to condemn homosexuality. But at times, the church has been very slow to call racism sin. And what I want to do today as we continue this series about equality and unity and responsibility is make it abundantly clear that racism, discrimination, and bigotry are sin. Now, nowhere in the text of Scripture does it say, thou shalt not be racist. In fact, you will not find the term racism anywhere in your Bible, but that does not mean that God's Word is silent on the subject. It does mean that we have to apply the teachings of the Bible on various matters to the issues of race. And the best way for us to see that racism is condemned by Scripture is to look at Jesus, the only man who ever lived sinlessly. And as a result of his sinless example, we're to look to him as the pattern when it comes to all issues, including the issues pertaining to race. In other words, the teaching and the ministry of Jesus is going to show us why racism, discrimination, and bigotry are sin. So I'm going to ask you to follow along today as we journey into the life of Jesus and we see how he exposes and condemns racism as sin. And we're going to begin here. Jesus identified racism as sin when he ignored racial superiority. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15 with me. We're going to look at a, a series of events that unfold here. When Matthew 15 begins, it does so with the Pharisees criticizing Jesus for not following the traditions of the elders about hand washing. Hmm. Maybe there's a sermon for today right there. But we're going to ignore that for now because Jesus responded to their criticism by pointing out that though their ex... That Though their external actions may be right, their hearts were not. See, Jesus turned to the crowds there in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 15, and he said, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And Jesus' point was that defilement is not a matter of external factors. It's a matter of internal factors. In other words, it's not what's on the outside that matters to God, but what's on the inside, which is something we talked about last week when we emphasized God's view of man with equality. From there, we find out that the Pharisees were offended. In verse 12, Jesus' own disciples come up to him and said, 
Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now, think about it. Why are the Pharisees offended by what Jesus said? It's because as devout Jews, they believe that the external did matter. If you weren't a Jew, then you were not one of God's chosen people in their eyes. They believed that their race was superior to all other races because God chose Abraham. Now, shortly after this teachable moment, Jesus took a little trip. He went outside of Palestine. He went outside the region of the Jews for the only time that I know of, which is recorded in Scripture during his ministry. And on this occasion, he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, here's what's interesting about Tyre and Sidon. They're not respectable areas in the eyes of the Jews. The Jews don't look to those towns and think highly of them. In fact, the most famous person to ever descend from Sidon was Queen Jezebel, that notorious queen who caused the people of Israel to worship Baal. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, even wrote about Tyre and Sidon. He referred to the people there as the Jews' bitterest enemies. So Jesus has traveled to a region that is not respected by Jewish people. Jesus went to an area that is considered enemy territory by Jewish people. He went into an area where the citizens would not be accepted by many Jews. And there he is approached by a mother. She is a Canaanite, meaning she is not from Jewish descent. She is from essentially Gentile descent. And this mother approaches Jesus with her demon-possessed daughter, and she begs Jesus to heal Now, their encounter is kind of unusual because Jesus did not immediately heal the child. But instead, if you look at verse 24 of Matthew 15, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That sounds a little discriminatory. But the truth was, Jesus was sent to the house of Israel. That was his primary, or or his initial, I should say, his initial mission. That was his priority. But the woman didn't give up. She was persistent. The disciples, in verse 23, encouraged Jesus to send her away, but Jesus looked at the woman, and look at verse 26 of Matthew 15. He said, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's he's telling her, my ministry to the Jews is paramount. It sounds like Jesus is discriminating against anybody who wasn't a Jew. But this woman understands that his mission to the Jews might be paramount, but it's not exclusive. So she says to him, in effect, I'm not asking you to change your mission. I'm not asking you to go primarily to the Gentiles. I'm asking you for some scraps. And look at verse 28, Matthew 15. In that persistence, in her begging of Jesus, 
Jesus, Jesus notices her faith. And he says this, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And the result was that her daughter was healed instantly. You see, by the end of the story, we discover that what mattered most to Jesus in this instance wasn't whether or not she was of a particular race, but whether or not she possessed a particular faith. And in healing her, Jesus ignored the mindset of racial superiority that plagued the Jews for centuries. As a result, this story teaches us that there is no special race, no preferred nationality, no particular heritage or ethnic background that is valued above all others in God's kingdom. And I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, when he instructed us to value or esteem others above ourselves. That instruction condemns racism since it eliminates any grounds for someone to feel racially superior. If I believe my race is better than your race, then I'm not valuing you above myself. And I'm contradicting a clear teaching of the Bible. So racism is identified as a sin by Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite mother because in it he ignored and nullified racial superiority. But that's not the only way that Jesus condemned racism. Jesus identified racism as sin when he modeled impartiality. Now, we talked about impartiality last week when we noticed that throughout Scripture, God is identified as no respecter of persons, that God is identified as one who is completely impartial. Well, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who became God in the flesh, didn't stop that characteristic of God. He continued it. Look at John chapter 4 with me. It's in John chapter 4 and verse 4 that we're told Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, I, I've spoken on this particular story before, and I've noted that Jesus did not technically have to pass through Samaria. It wasn't a requirement for him to pass through Samaria. He could have gone around Samaria like most Jews did. Most Jews that wanted to travel from Galilee down to Judea or vice versa, they took a 50-mile detour across the Jordan River so that they could go around the borders of Samaria instead of through Samaria. Now that would be like traveling from Athens to Atlanta by driving up and over Lake Lanier to get on I-75 just to avoid driving through Gwinnett County. They, but, but in the instance of the Jews, they did this because they hated the people of Samaria. And honestly, the feeling was mutual. See, the Jews hated the Samaritans because they descended from interracial marriages that occurred between Jews and Canaanites who remained in Palestine during the Babylonian exile. These marriages contradicted Mosaic Law's prohibition against Israelites intermarrying with non-Israelite people. Now, technically, that law wasn't so much concerned about race as it was faith. The reason God didn't want the Israelites to intermarry with other nationalities or other other nations, is because he didn't want them to adopt their faith system, and he knew the power, the influence of marriage. And so it's really not an interracial issue, it's an interfaith issue. But the Jews hated Samaritans because they descended from those relationships. Conversely, the Samaritans hated the Jews because when the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, 
they refused to let the Samaritans help. So when you think Jews and Samaritans, think the Hatfields and McCoys of legend in our nation. Think, if you like Harry Potter, Slytherin and Gryffindor. Or, more appropriate for today, think Alabama and Auburn. And yet the Bible says that Jesus, a Jew, had to go through Samaria. Those words speak of necessity, of compulsion, not convenience. Think about why he had to go through Samaria. What drove him to go through Samaria? I believe he had to go through Samaria because there were souls in Samaria. As one preacher pointed out, Jesus never stopped being a Jew, but he did not let his culture keep him, keep him from reaching the spiritual needs of people that were different from him. Now, apparently the disciples weren't quite like Jesus just yet. Because when they arrived in Samaria, they, they arrived at a town called Sychar, and Jesus sent his disciples into that Samaritan town for food. And here's what's interesting to me. It apparently never dawned on them that while they were in town, they should tell people about Jesus. Because while they were in town collecting resources for themselves, they didn't invite anyone to come out and meet Jesus. And when they arrived back from town, they were shocked. The text uses the word marveled in verse 27. They were shocked and marveled to find Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. She left as soon as the disciples arrived. And look at the conversation that unfolds between Jesus and his disciples, starting in verse 31 of John chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What is he talking about? He's trying to get them to see past their racial barriers. He's in effect saying, guys, look at this place. Right now it's harvest time. Open your eyes because right now this despised people, this perverted race that you were taught to hate, they're the harvest. There are souls right here that need to be saved. And the next thing they knew, if you look at verse 40 of John chapter 4, the Samaritans came to Jesus, and they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. But they came not because his disciples went into town and invited they came because Jesus intentionally sat down with the Samaritan woman and spoke to her as a soul worth saving. And she went to town. And she told everybody she knew that there's a man out there that knows my life. 
and she invited them to come back. You see, when we look here in John chapter 4, Jesus' actions reflect the teaching that's presented in James chapter 2 and verse 9, where James says, If you show partiality, you are committing sin. Now that's pretty blunt. That's right to the point. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. And Jesus modeled the truth of that here. The specific example that James gave was a situation in which a wealthy man was favored over a poor man. But here in John chapter 4, we have the disciples favoring their own race over the Samaritan race. And so as we consider the implication of James chapter 2 and verse 9 in conjunction with the example of Jesus in John chapter 4, what we have to realize is that if we favor someone because of their race, then we're engaging in this practice of partiality that is condemned. And so the same application has to be made. If a Caucasian man is favored over an African-American man or vice versa, then it's sin. So the Bible condemns racism by condemning partiality. And Jesus models the correct mindset when it comes to race by modeling impartiality. So Jesus identified racism as sin when he modeled partiality. And he identified racism as sin when he eliminated enmity. Now, there's a great little book out, a book written by four brothers in Christ who are, all, who are ministers in the brotherhood. Their names are Glenn Colley, Ben Gilselbach, if I pronounce his name correctly, Hiram Kemp, and Melvin Ote. The book is called It's There in Black and White. It actually was written a year ago, but it addresses issues of race from Scripture by four brothers in our brotherhood. I encourage you, if you want to study this subject more on your own, to, to grab that book. But in that book, they define enmity as hostility, hatred, or antagonism towards another person. And they indicate that it, this is the ultimate issue with racism. Enmity is the ultimate issue with racism. Now here's the thing about enmity. In Scripture, it's identified as a work of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20. And it stands in direct opposition to the greatest command, in which we're instructed to love our neighbor as ourselves. But here's what we do with the greatest command. We have a problem that at times we place limitations on the definition of a neighbor. I know that because the Bible indicates that there was somebody who did that with Jesus. In fact, it wasn't just an ordinary guy. It was a biblical scholar who wanted to place limitations on the definition of neighbor. If you'll go to Luke chapter 10, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, in the setup of this parable, we have a lawyer. Now, a lawyer is not somebody who is a legal representative in this context. It's somebody who is a teacher of the law. And this lawyer, this scholar, if you will, asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And what the lawyer was asking is, aren't there qualifications for neighbor status? Aren't there some people in the world that don't deserve to be loved? And it's significant that Jesus answers this lawyer's question about who is my neighbor. He answers it by deliberately making it an issue of race. So Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, starting in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. 
Now, a, a first century Jew would not like that title, parable of the good Samaritan, because as we've already noted, in their eyes, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. So what Jesus does here is he deliberately challenges racial stereotypes in the telling of this parable. Consider some of the elements of this parable for a moment. According to the parable, there's a man who was walking down the road to Jerusalem and he was attacked by robbers. The robbers beat him up and left him stranded and dying on the side of the road. Eventually, people begin to pass by and they see the dying man. The first two individuals observe him and ignore him, continuing on their journey, while the third individual sees him and chooses to assist him. That's the uh, gist of the parable. But we need to unpack these characters for just a moment. Think about the injured man. He is apparently Jewish. It's not stated that he's Jewish. That's deduced based on the fact that Jesus is telling the parable to a Jewish teacher of the law. So his Jewish identity is placed on the character in the story. Plus, the identities of the other individuals involved in the story have the most impact if the injured man is Jewish. And it's also worth noticing the location of the attack. It's on a highway between Jerusalem and Jericho, and that hints at a Jewish heritage because it gives the impression that the man is either coming or going to the temple. Now, the first individual to see him is a priest. Priests were of Jewish descent as well. All priests were members of the tribe of Levi, and more specifically, descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the original priest. They were responsible for overseeing the sacrifices and the purification rituals at the temple. In other words, they were the primary mediators of the Jewish faith in that day. The second individual to see the injured man is identified as a Levite. Like the priests, the Levite was of Jewish descent and of the tribe of Levi, but was not specifically a descendant of Aaron. Therefore, he was not qualified to be a priest, but he was still an employee of the temple, if you will. Levites assisted the priests, prepared offerings. They cared for the courts and the chambers of the sanctuary, and later they were involved in interpreting the law and, and functioned as teachers. And so both the priest and the Levite share the same ethnicity of the injured man. Both are significant individuals in the Jewish faith system. And then we have the third individual that comes along. The third and final individual to see the injured man was a Samaritan. As we've already noted, the most important thing to know about this man is that the Jews hated Samaritans and the Samaritans hated Jews. Now I want you to think about how these individuals responded to the injured man when they saw him. When the priest and the Levite saw the injured man, they, they crossed over to the other side of the road to pass by him. They completely ignored the injured man. 
Maybe they were concerned about defiling themselves before they returned to their duties at the temple since touching a dead body would contaminate them. Maybe they saw him over there and assumed he was dead and thought, well, I better not get close. I could stumble and fall on him and then I'd be defiled and I couldn't do my priestly or my Levitical function. Maybe they were concerned about exposing themselves to the same danger that befell this injured man. Maybe they saw him over there and thought, well, those, those, the people that did that to him could still be around here. I better keep my distance and hurry out of here. Maybe there was some rationale to their thinking. Maybe they were even concerned about the financial risk of helping him. Maybe they looked at him and thought, sure wish I could help him, but right now I've just got too many bills to pay. I can't afford his health care needs. We don't know what they were thinking, but they weren't thinking about helping him. Then the Samaritan, someone that injured man had been taught to hate, he came down the road, and instead of ignoring the injured man, he had compassion on him. That's what's said in verse 33 of Luke 10. He bandaged the injured man's wounds. He took him to a, an inn and paid for his health care and even promised to return to pay any extra expenses that were not accounted for yet. This guy, this Samaritan, is supposed to be that man's enemy. And he's the only guy who loved him enough to do anything about his situation. At the conclusion of the parable, Jesus asked that lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And I want you to notice, notice the lawyer's answer. The lawyer answered by saying, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer couldn't say the Samaritan. He couldn't identify his ethnicity. He couldn't acknowledge that the, the hero of the story was a Samaritan. That was beyond him. Because he had so much enmity, so much hate, so much antagonism and hostility toward that race that he couldn't say it was the Samaritan. He intentionally avoided giving credit to someone that he held in contempt. And upon hearing the lawyer's affirmation of the one who showed mercy... Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now think about what Jesus just said to that lawyer, that Jewish lawyer. Go and be like the Samaritan. Go and do things like the person you hate, like the person you won't even name. The moral of the story is that Jesus expects his followers to love even the people that they've been taught to hate, to love just like the Samaritan loved the injured Jew. And that's a higher standard of love than we're accustomed to. Jesus even goes so far here as to set a, 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 an understanding that, that racism is not just sin, but it's a barrier. that it prevents us from seeing things the way they're supposed to be seen. Imagine. Imagine, if you will, Alabama fans, if you were told you need to be like an Auburn fan. 
Imagine, if you will, what it would be like to be told you need to be more like the person you despise. And it's all because you see with eyes of hate rather than eyes of love. I want you to think in terms of love for just a moment. We are comfortable when the love standard only requires us to love the people that deserve love. But Jesus is decidedly unimpressed with that standard of love. That's why he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 32, he said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. See, as people who are in Christ, we're expected to love by a standard greater than those who are outside of Christ. So a couple verses later, Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus gives us a higher standard of love, and he instructs his followers to love better than the world by even loving our enemies. That's what the Samaritan did. He loved his enemy. And I think he found out that he wasn't really his enemy when he showed him love. And here's the thing. That Samaritan is not the only one to love his enemy. Because Jesus loved his enemies too. Do you realize that Jesus said, Love one another as I have loved you. In John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. And he did so right after he washed the disciples' feet. Feet that included those of Judas Iscariot. He was fully aware that Judas was complicit. And yet he washed his feet. And he went to the cross. And he died for you and I while we were still enemies, according to Romans chapter 5. That's a different standard. And since enmity is a work of the flesh and love is a fruit of the Spirit, we must see racism, which is at its core an enmity issue, we must see it as sin that will prevent us from inheriting the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus tried to get across to his followers as he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because Jesus identified racism as sin when he eliminated the existence of enmity. We're going a little long, but you're going to show me grace because you love me. Finally, Jesus identified racism as sin when he dissolved division. I've already referenced Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. We saw that enmity is identified as a work of the flesh there, but also notice that division is identified as a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20. And think about this in Titus Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul identifies one who stirs up division as sinful and self-condemned. And we have to realize that at its core, racism is an issue of division. It's a deliberate decision to allow race to be a barricade to fellowship or mission or whatever else. And thus it creates separation where there is supposed to be unity. So now I want to take you to another event in the life of Jesus. And it's in Luke chapter 12 and it's towards the end of his life. 
just before he has that last meal with his disciples, before he institutes the Lord's Supper, before he washes their feet and continues on to the Garden of Gethsemane, just one chapter before all that begins, in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, we're told that among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now I want to pause right there. Because it's worth noting that the individuals who wanted to see Jesus were not Jews. They were Greeks. They were of a different ethnicity. They were of a different race. And notice, they had to request permission to see Jesus. We don't see Nicodemus requesting permission to see Jesus. We don't see the Pharisees requesting permission to see Jesus, but we see these Greeks having to request permission. It's as if they lacked direct access. There was some degree of division or separation that they experienced, whether that be intentional or unintentional, but there was some degree of separation they experienced that was reminiscent of the temple. Gentiles did not have access to the temple like Jews. They were relegated to the outer core of the temple where they could not observe the sacrifices, where they could not draw near to the facility where God's presence was manifested. They were on the outside looking in when it came to the temple, and as they approached Jesus, whether it was the disciples' decision or these Greeks' decision, they approached it as if, they were on the outside looking in. Now look at what Jesus said in verse 23 of John 12. Jesus answered Philip and Andrew. He answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now you may be aware there are several times, particularly in John's gospel, that Jesus said, My hour or my time has not yet come. In fact, there are, there are, are uh, three references prior to John chapter 12 where Jesus said, My time has not yet come. In John chapter 2 and verse 4, when his mother volunteered him to help with a beverage shortage at a wedding, Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7 and verse 30, we're told that the religious leaders tried to arrest Jesus when he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8 and verse 20, a similar statement appears when he's at the temple teaching. And we're told yet again that they, are, they wanted to arrest him, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Then we get to John chapter 12. Chronologically, John chapter 12 is the next statement about Jesus' time or Jesus' hour. And here in John chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus declared that the hour had come. It's the first time he says that. He'll say it five more times throughout the Gospel of John. In chapter 12, verse 27, he'll say it twice, and then he'll say it in verse, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 32, chapter 17, verse 1. But this is the first. And I find it interesting that at this moment, when Greek believers come seeking Jesus, he announces for the first time that his hour had come. Now look at what he said in verse 32. He said, When I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus used this opportunity to declare what it meant for him to be glorified. And for him to be glorified meant he would have to die. 
And he speaks, we're told by, by John, he speaks of the kind of death he's going to die when he says he will be lifted up. But notice the emphasis that Jesus places that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Not just Jewish people. Not just one particular race. He will draw all people to himself. I find it interesting that the arrival and the request of these non-Jewish believers served as a catalyst for Jesus to for the first time say, my time has come. And I think it's an indication that maybe with the arrival of these, these, these Greek individuals and his own awareness of the timing, Jesus is acknowledging that his mission was for the world. That his mission was to die, not only so he could bridge the gap between man and God, but so that he could bridge the gap between man and man. His death would create the bridge between all people and God that has not existed since the Garden of Eden. And that's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, that now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, Jesus went to the cross so that anybody of any race, of any tongue, of any land could come to the Father. In fact, nothing unites us like the cross because at the cross we all share the same identity. Sinners, in need of a Savior. And at the cross, we all can receive a new identity. Sons and daughters of God. And so Paul said it best in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28, when he said, In Christ you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul said is that our in Christ identity, which we receive when we emerge from the waters of baptism, that in Christ identity unites us in a way that nothing else can. And so that in Christ identity, it dissolves any external identity that divides us, whether it be our ethnicity, our gender, or even our socioeconomic status. We are Christians first and foremost. That's why one preacher said the greatest sermon ever preached against racism is the cross of Jesus. And so when we look at what Jesus said here in John chapter 12, when these Greek believers arrived and sought him, when he declared that he will be lifted up so that all people can come to him, Jesus was in effect teaching us that racism is sin because it has divided us and at the cross, it will be conquered. See, the point of today's lesson is quite simple. The point of today's lesson is to recognize that racism is sin, and therefore it is missing the mark of Christ's perfect example. A mindset of racial superiority, or a heart that practices partiality, or, or, or a heart that harbors enmity, or any conduct or mindset 
that encourages division is sin. It's missing the mark. So I want to close with this. There was a king who was out hunting in his forest when he stumbled upon a tree with several targets drawn on its trunk with arrows directly in the center of the bullseye. He asked the people who were with him, he said, who is this fine archer? I must recruit him for my army. And so they began a search to find who it was that was so accurate and so precise with their arrows. After a while, they encountered a, a young boy carrying a bow and a quiver. And they asked him, are you the one who shot these arrows? And the boy answered affirmatively. And so the king said, well, from now on, you shall be a part of the king's army. And I'd like to know how you became such a fine archer so we can train all the others. And the boy said, well, it's easy. I shoot the arrow at the tree, and then I go over there and paint the target around it. I've been talking about sin today. Because in Scripture, the Greek term translated sin is an archery term which means to miss the bullseye. To miss the mark. And we've already acknowledged that Jesus is our mark. Our lives are to be patterned after him. In fact, in our scripture reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier, we read that Jesus left us an example for us to follow. But all too often, we're like this little boy. In our service to the king of kings, we fail to hit the established target of righteousness and holiness to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect and then we try to move the target by justifying our actions or by making excuses for indiscretions or by by, by blaming others for our failures or by redefining what counts as sin and we may not do this in any area of life more than we do when it comes to racial issues What we need to understand today is that we don't have the right to move the target. What we have is the responsibility to aim for it continuously. This morning, we continue our study of unity, equality, and responsibility. It's our aim to understand what God's will is for our lives, particularly right now when it comes to the issue of race. Last week, we spent our time focusing on God, realizing how God sees people and understanding that we need to see people just like he does, equally. Today, we spend our time looking at the life of Jesus to see how he condemned racism so that we too will identify it as sin. This morning, it may be that you've missed the mark, not just on this issue, but on any issue in, the, in your life that God expects you to aim for. And it may be that you need to repent today. It may be that you have not been covered by the blood of Christ, that you have not experienced the blessing of the forgiveness of your sins that comes from contact with his blood in the waters of baptism. Today you can become his child by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe that's the step you need to take today. 
Maybe you became a child of God, but you have not aimed correctly on a particular issue. Maybe you're a child of God and you've missed the target. And it's time for you to correct your aim. Maybe you struggle with some of the attitudes and mindsets that we have talked about and condemned today. And you need the prayers of this congregation to help you overcome them. You need the support of your brothers in Christ to help you be better. I don't know what your need is specifically, but I know our Lord does. And I know we have brothers and sisters in Christ right here who want to help you. So if you have any need to respond to the invitation this morning, we encourage you to come while together we stand and sing. The light from the throne shines for you.